0: Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. This is episode five, where everything we're going to talk about today is dealing with hip impingement, also known as femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI. Um, I am your co-host, Dr. Michael Ray. I am a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Derek Miles, who is a physical therapist out at Stanford Children's Hospital, and Dr. Michael Amato, who is a physical therapist out at Boston PT and Wellness How's it going today, guys?
1: Good morning, Mike.
0: Doing well. Did you guys have a good weekend?
1: Got to spend some time with the family, cooked a brisket yesterday, overall a very uh, productive, relaxing weekend. Yeah, we got to go outside, I feel like, and not
2: die in the sweltering heat for one of the first weekends in this beautiful New England summer, so...
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I feel like it's getting cooler in the valley as well. And my favorite time of year is certainly fall and spring. I don't like extremes like summer and winter.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we get the extremes out here.
1: Uh, motto, bef- go ahead, Derek. I was going to say, it doesn't deviate in temperature out here at all. So it's, I don't <laughs> know what the seasons that you speak of are. <laughs> it's just always warm. It's just always temperate. Yeah. Because you guys don't
0: really have a ton of humidity out there, right? No, none at all. That wouldn't be too bad. Um, We were talking about this before I hit record, but I figured there may be some listeners that are interested in this. We were talking about the nihilism book that's coming out in like eight days. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Amado, you you said you're going to go to the uh, release?
2: I'm pretty much like a premier customer at the MIT Press Bookstore. Um, I don't know if I should be proud of that but um, I go there about like twice a month and peruse but yeah the MIT press is coming out with a uh, their essential series on nihilism and they're having like a in-house author event so obviously I'll be there
0: yeah that's gonna be pretty good and I mean I heard about the MIT press from you and Derek and then I started following them and they actually like uh, I mean, it's probably not shocking to most people, but it was to me, a lot of the books are released. I'm like, oh, I really want to read that, like the uh, Experiencing the Impossible, the Science of Magic book. I pulled from that. Mm-hmm. I think the Misinformation Age book I'm reading came from, I'm not sure if it was MIT Press or if it was the Harvard Press. It's they one of those.
2: It. I know they sell it at the store, but I think it might be a different. Uh, yeah, it might be a different publishing company.
0: Yeah, so now I follow like MIT Press, Harvard Press. I think Yale has one, um, Mm -hmm. maybe one other one. Oxford's good too. Oh yeah, to keep note of. Um, Um, so yeah, that'll be cool. I'm excited to get that book on the twentieth and start reading it. What are you guys reading currently?
1: Well, I just finished two books last week, and I'm reading a physics overview book by Brian Green, and last night was Chapters Deep into String Theory, and then Becoming Human by Michael Tomaso, which is an ontological exploration of human psychology. So mm-hmm. it's, uh I'm deep down the rabbit hole right now, but I have two new books coming today, one by Annie Duke on probabilistic thinking, and then uh, a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me that was recommended to me by one of uh, my former interns. I actually
0: have that book sitting in my nightstand from like two years ago, and I haven't cracked it. So if you're going to read it, I may actually start reading it now. We we can just do our book club thing. You you want to join me on uh, on the physics textbook? Man, that sounds like really light reading for me. Like, I think it's yeah. just so below me that it's not even <laughs> worth me wasting my time for that. Oh my occasionally goodness. I do
1: something like this just to remind me how little I actually know.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, scary. I just feel um, like it would be a lot of me getting angry and throwing things while reading that
1: book. It's more like occasionally I read the words and I'm like, I know my accent would have me pronouncing it so wrong. If I were to actually say it and reading it, you're just kind of like figuring it out in your head anyway. So I just like picture myself going and having this discussion with someone actually in the field and saying it and then being like, what in the hell are you talking about? Just because <laughs> I'm so far off of what it actually is supposed to be.
0: I feel like that <laughs> happens to me all the time because I read it and in my head, it sounds perfectly normal. And then I have conversations with people and they're like, do you mean this? And I'm like, oh, so that's how you pronounce that. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, in combination of West Virginia accent and uh, trying to figure it out, a word I've never seen before, the, the propensity for that uh, giving a hilarious result is likely high. <laughs> Motto, what are you reading currently?
2: Um, I've been trying to flay my way through uh, Being being in Time by Martin Heidegger. Um, it's, a, it's a beast. Uh, it's essentially like a uh ontological argument for the being of like humans uh through a phenomenological perspective it i i I sound really pretentious saying that (laughs) Um, it's it's legitimately one of the most like incomprehensible books so i am spending a lot of time trying to figure that out um but i'm almost through halfway and i i am enjoying it i do think it has a lot of good uh points that it makes and and then in conjunction with that i'm actually reading the human the hermeneutics of medicine and the phenomenology of health which is by frederick sphenus i don't know how to say his last name um so it was it's cool because he this is this is this was written like in the late 90s early 2000s and he references a lot of heidegger's work as well as other philosophers so it's a nice way of seeing like a current contemporary uh viewpoint on some of this work that was done like in the you know 20s and 30s so that's kind of what i've been focusing on a lot lately it's uh it's taking up a lot of my brain space yeah a lot of that
0: definitely sounds complex and equally a rabbit hole in and of itself
2: yeah and it all ties back to kind of our last podcast about you know inactivism and phenomenology and this is where a lot of the ideas originated from so I'm just trying to go back to like the primary source and figure out like what were these people saying and how how has it developed into like what we now know. So I'm
0: reading, uh, and at some point I might actually finish one of these books. Um, Being wrong by Katherine Schultz. Still, uh, are still reading that one by Katherine Schultz. Uh, reading crib sheets by Emily Oster. I think uh, misinformation age. And then um, the one book that we talked about last week, Mike, uh, Tractus Logico Philosophica.
1: Oh, yeah, Philosophica, I started that too. Yeah.
0: Philosophicus, which is yes. by, um, I'm blanking on the name,
2: Wittgenstein.
0: There we go. Thank you. Yeah. So that looks like a pretty interesting book just because it's uh, a really large rabbit hole on language from the looks of it.
2: Yeah. Um, I just read the preface or the uh, introduction, but haven't gotten through like the the main part of it yet.
0: Yeah, it's good. Good so far. And then it looks like I'm going to be reading that one book that uh, Derek named off on mistakes were made, but not by me if he starts that. So at some point I'll actually finish one of these books.
2: (laughs) That's always a trick, right?
0: Right. So today, it's It's always a process. Yes. (laughs) A a never ending process. That's why it's always a fun question to ask you guys, like, what are you guys reading? Because I know it's going to lead to like 10 books being named off.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that's, I'm trying to pare down to where I'm less than four for when the nihilism book actually comes out. That way I can devote some capacity to it. So we'll, we'll see how well I pull that off.
0: Yeah, same. Same. So today's podcast is going to be all about uh, these hips don't lie or do they? is the title of our podcast today. That's courtesy of my wife, Erica. She came up with that. And this one, I think, um, will be very beneficial for people. It's going to be a lot about hip pain symptoms and then how that relates to people who are being diagnosed with or told that they have hip impingement. Uh, The more technical and appropriate name is femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, which we'll definitely get into that today. We have a couple of papers that we're going to try to go through. The main one that we're going to discuss today is going to be a consensus statement, the Warwick Agreement on FAI and Syndrome. Uh, it was an international consensus statement that I want to say came out in 2016. If you're not familiar with like these consensus statements, it's basically, well, hopefully what happens is a conglomeration of various experts within the field throughout the world come together from all different backgrounds, whether it's like orthopedics or um, sports medicine, medicine. Um, a physiotherapist maybe, an athletic trainer maybe, and they come together and kind of meet about this one topic. And the hope is that they can bring some um, consensus, in in essence, to the discussion. And for this one, it's going to be related to the diagnosis of it, the appropriate management of it, and then future research. And so we're going to frame this discussion from the six questions that they sought to try to answer. And we'll just kind of go through each of these um, and then we curated some questions from the Instagram followers that we try to go through again. I know a lot of people like that with the low back discussion, so we'll get to those towards the end. Now, a brief disclaimer with this discussion, uh, we've spent a few podcasts discussing the complexities of pain. This discussion will inherently lead to a biological reductionism kind of lens and approach, but we are going to discuss some of the nuance to diagnosing people with FAI and how meaningful is that exactly to hip pain symptoms that people present with. Um, I would say that uh, all of us on this podcast are very familiar with this. We've dealt with a lot of both general population and athletes who deal with hip pain. Um, so uh, either Derek or Amato, what is like the usual clinical presentation from just a, a pain-based symptom standpoint that people present with in clinic? That kind of leads to this this discussion.
1: I think it's generally people will present with just anterior hip pain and. It- You start looking at it originally, like if we go into the historical context of this, it was something called the C sign, which essentially like if you turn your hand into a C shape and put it on the front of your hip, that's where most people tended to report symptoms. And that was almost one of the diagnostic criteria out of it. And this kind of gets into where even with patients or clients, where hip pain is generally thought to reside because you will get the people who come in and point to the outside of their hip and be like, well, I have impingement or I have something going on with my hip here. And they're actually like, you're pretty distal from the joint at that point. It's like, it's mostly where your gluteal is attached. And there's just not a whole lot of joint stuff going on over there. Whereas more of the FAI bucket is more the anterior hip pain to groin pain.
0: Yeah, that's that's usually what I see as well. Um, and the interesting thing about this discussion is, I think a lot of people are giving this diagnosis, and they didn't exactly go through the diagnostic criteria that the consensus statement outlines. And we'll probably get into you know some of the pros and cons of that diagnostic criteria. But it almost often seems like someone's like, "Yeah, they they touched the front of my hip. That felt sore. It hurts in the bottom of the squat. They told me I have impingement," and then. they've kind of left with that, not really sure what it means. And then I think a lot of times, uh, we said this yesterday in text, if we were to play a word association game with uh, hip impingement or FAI syndrome, it would probably be with surgery, right? That seems to be like what's the common thread on people's minds.
1: Well, I think it's moved more in the last five years, Um, probably circa 2012, you would have had that association. But I think now it's much more like let's go conservative first because we've started getting more of these long-term papers showing outcomes not to be the end-all be-all.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll definitely talk about the uh, surgical side of things and kind of some outcomes and a recent paper that I was pretty heated about reading yesterday called the fashion trial from the UK. we'll go through that as well. Amato, is that your usual like a uh, clinical presentation for patients for you as well?
2: Yeah, it's pretty common. I would say like that anterior hip pain or they even people uh, describe it as like tightness in their hip flexor um, even though the tightness is at the bottom of the like mostly at the end range of hip flexion which, you know, doesn't really make uh, like anatomical logical sense. But yeah, that's more or less kind of what I come across.
0: So I think it's interesting that um – um the technical name of this and kind of what the consensus statement advocates for is we don't say things like just hip impingement or FAI just femoral acetabular impingement, but instead we say things uh, for femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. And the key word there is certainly syndrome because the way they define this is it's a motion-related clinical disorder of the hip with a triad of symptoms, clinical signs, and imaging findings. It represents symptomatic premature contact between the proximal femur and acetabulum. So if you're not familiar, you have the femoral head, which articulates with the acetabulum, which is kind of like this shallow cup, and the uh, the head, which is like a ball for the femur, fits into that socket and kind of articulates with it. And so they're saying that that syndrome implies the, kind of a multifactorial diagnostic criteria. And they go on to describe uh, kind of two types, which I think most people are familiar with, which is going to be cam impingement, which is an outgrowth or flattening of um, at the femoral head, and it's also a, the other one would be pincer, which is an outgrowth of acetabulum, which increases coverage over the femoral head. Those are kind of the two big ones, but you can also have mixed cases that present with both of those at some de- some varying degree. Um, I think it's interesting that the, even the consensus statement says this, uh, and it's probably appropriate time to talk about this. But you could have imaging with alterations to the morphology of the femur and to the acetabulum and not have symptoms, right? And so they're making a point to note that you have to be symptomatic with those findings. You can't be, you can't x-ray them and they have no symptoms. What What do you guys think about that with the consensus statement? And what do you think it means in, in our ability to x-ray people that are asymptomatic and still find these morphological changes?
2: Yeah, this... This is like the frustrating part of the conversation for me, and I think we were talking about this earlier, where it's like it, it it's hard to define what's normal versus pathological, right? Um, and if you're finding these same findings in asymptomatic populations, and I forget the exact number, but it's pretty high. I think in, in athletes, they're looking at cam morphology and uh, up to 60 70% of the uh, asymptomatic population. It it really begs the question, like, how are we defining normal? Especially when in these consensus statements, they're literally saying, um, you know, that the panel was unable to recommend precise diagnostic values for any of the common measures to define camera pincer morphology. So we're, we're kind of starting at a weird place where we can't really totally define what this looks like or how to measure it. Yet we are seeing it also in asymptomatic individuals. So what, what is normal versus what is abnormal?
1: Well, I think we have two points here really to unpack in, as it relates to the hips, like there's a huge variability in how people are born in the shape of their hips. And so you have that out of the fold. And then as we start being more active or participating in sports, we start having adaptations to those things as well and if you look at like a sport like hockey where there's a ridiculously high incidence of asymptomatic fai imaging findings like it's hard for us to call it abnormal it, we accept in like the throwing population there's a phenomenon called glenohumeral retroversion and it's thought to help out with the throwing mechanics and something that's an advantage but really the same adaptations occurring that or likely that we're seeing in the development of like a cam type finding on imaging in a hockey athlete and you look at it it comes down to just repetitions of doing the same thing so it likely shouldn't be overly surprising that we see these same type adaptations in a population whose sport is predicated upon doing three movements in some variation for thousands of reps over the course of 10 years
0: yeah it's interesting um I, you know, I did a big write-up on the shoulder, uh, I think it was last year, and we looked at internal impingement of the shoulder. And, uh, yeah, most of it, when we looked at the the totality of the data, it appears to be sports-specific adaptations to improve your ability to be an overhead athlete uh, with throwing and pitching and other other overhead sports. And that kind of seems what's happening with this diagnosis for athletes presenting with it. Um, and, and what Amato was saying is, is spot on, like, we had a systematic review from Frank et al. that had around 2,000 asymptomatic hips that were scanned. 33% of that cohort were just athletes. And out of that 33%, 54.8% presented with a cam impingement. And then 49.5% had pincer impingement. And out of all of the athletes, there was also 65.4 with labral issues, because that's also a common, a common theme that goes hand in hand with FAI. So it's very difficult to see data like that, especially in athletes when we see a high prevalence of this and they're asymptomatic, no pain and no dysfunction. So it it very much is like we shouldn't probably hang our hats on x-ray imaging as the golden standard for, for diagnosing FAI syndrome. And I think that was the whole point of the consensus, people saying, well, they have to be symptomatic. But the weird part about that is it's almost like self-defeating, like if you have data that they can be asymptomatic, then how how are we saying that this is the problem and this is what we should focus our interventions on, quote-unquote, fixing? Um, so they go on to say that there's some other diagnostic criteria that I think we should talk about because we got a lot of questions on how is this being diagnosed from people. And so the first symptom that they're going to say is motion-related or position-related pain in the hip or groin. Um, pain may also be felt in the back the buttock or the thigh in addition pain uh, patients may also describe some clicking some catching lockness stiffness or restricted range of motion Um, what was interesting in that ROM part that I know we all talked about via text yesterday was it seems like mixed data like some people do have reduced range and some don't and I think an interesting question to discuss is is that reduced range of motion can we extrapolate that that's because of the morphological changes or Would it be more appropriate to say potentially because a person's having symptoms, they're self-selecting range of motion? What do you, what do you guys think?
1: So this is one instance where I will say that I think the morphology can certainly affect it, but I don't know that it's necessarily just the cam type impingement or whatever we're going to call, like whichever flavor we're going to discuss. Um, Because you really look at it like there is a lot of structure that goes around your hip and trying to nail it down to just one thing. It's impossible. So, like, you know, it doesn't mean that your obturator internus is tight or your gemelli is tight or whatever, like, obscure muscle we're really going to get down to. Knowing full well I'm going to get some comment from someone telling me how important the obturator is. But, you know, it's... (laughs) we just like to make things more important than they likely are. And there's a lot going on in any one of these instances and trying to nail it down to just like one structure or one muscle is likely impossible.
0: Well, my psoas is the key to all of my success in life. So, uh, I think you're wrong, Derek.
2: (laughs) Release your psoas, release your stress. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the way I see it in terms of the range of motion, like, like Derek saying, like, yeah, you can have an obvious, like, anatomical limit to your range of motion. But, you know, I don't know how far we're into this podcast, 15 minutes, but I'll, I'll drop, I'll drop in activism. But you can look at range of motion as like how much options you're afforded, right? Um, So it doesn't mean like it's like the end all be all because, you have range of motion changes doesn't mean you're automatically predicated to experience either limitations in function or limitations in symptoms. Uh, you know, I just think there's more, there's much more variability going on that Derek was alluding to that can um, allow you to do what you need to do.
0: Yeah. I, I would agree with what both of you are saying. Like it's your morphology and how meaningful that is the development of symptoms Thus far, it would appear that it's quite murky and it would be very difficult for someone to say, this is why you're experiencing pain. And and if anyone's listened to our podcast thus far, they would know that's something that we kind of rally against pretty heavily as far as the biomedical model and, and pinning something from a reductionist standpoint down to just a biological tissue issue, especially with the evidence that we're seeing with asymptomatic presentation of it.
2: Do you have a new injury or pain that prevents you from training? Leaves you unsure about what to do in the gym or how to recover? Or have you had some long standing ache and pain that you've been pushing through, maybe trying to ignore, but hoping it goes away? In either case, we'd highly suggest learning more about pain and injury. And to that end, we offer consultations with Doctor of Physical Therapy Derek Miles and Doctor of Chiropractory Michael Ray, the barbell medicine pain and rehab experts. They offer one-time consults or a combination of an initial consultation plus rehab-focused programming and follow-up over time. As evidence-based experts in the field, they apply a comprehensive biopsychosocial approach to guide your path towards normal function and performance. Consults are for adults age 18 plus only.
0: So they go on to say that for clinical signs... Um, that they may have, let's see, hip impingement tests usually reproduce the patient's typical pain. The most commonly used test is going to be the flexion, adduction, internal rota- rotation. This is FADIRS. Um, I'm sure everyone's familiar with this. The opposing one to this would be Faber with flexion, abduction, and external rotation. But the primary one that often gets associated with FAI, it's going to be FADIRS. So you flex the hip, usually the patient's on their back, you flex the hip, Uh, you know, when you get towards end range of that, you're going to internally rotate. So it means you're going to kind of take the foot and turn it outwards while dropping the thigh inwards. And then you're going to have adduction or you're going to have adduction first and then internal rotation. So flexion, drop the leg midline and then internally rotate it. And the interesting thing about Fadir's is it appears to be highly sensitive, but not very specific. And, um, you know, either one who, who wants to talk about what does that, mean exactly in regards to diagnosing for more acetabular impingement syndrome?
2: Like in, just in terms of the sensitive versus specific? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the way I look at that is like if you're symptomatic and you perform that flexion, adduction, internal rotation, like end range of motion, it's probably going to p- reproduce your symptoms. So um, sensitive, like kind of like the, the, the acronym or the way to figure it out is, like, if you got a negative test, if you got a negative result from that sensitive test, it would probably rule it out. Um, so if if you were symptomatic and then that didn't really bug you, you would probably be looking at another place that wasn't the joint. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, yeah. Typic- typically- no, yeah. Yeah, go ahead.
0: No, no, you're, you're fine.
2: Yeah, and then I was going to say, like, if it was highly specific and you got a positive test, then it would it would definitely rule it in. So in this case, like, getting a negative test on the fader would probably rule out any kind of FAI, FAI syndrome-related symptoms. Um, but just having it as a positive, like, provocative test doesn't automatically rule it in.
1: Well, and if you look at FADER in general, like a positive test can also be pain on the outside of the hip as well, if you look at the actual literature on it. So, you know, if, if I put you into adduction and internal rotation and you're telling me it hurts the outside of your hip, that doesn't really drive me towards thinking you have anything going on at the hip joint itself. Yeah, I think the
0: interesting part with having a highly sensitive and low specificity test is the, the very high probability of false positives meaning that you do that test and you do experience symptoms, but it's not meaningful in any way as it relates to the diagnosis of FAI syndrome. Um, so I, I find it difficult to want to utilize that test as like, if I did it and you're symptomatic, to Mike's point, it really doesn't tell me a whole lot other than you're sensitive to flexion, adduction, and internal rotation positioning. Um, and that just doesn't turn out to be too meaningful in any other regard outside of that. Um And usually, like, people are going to associate oftentimes when they're dealing with this type of stuff as, like, squat-based issues with symptomatic development. Do you guys have anything else to add to that?
1: Well, I mean, specific to the squat, it's hard to really – I mean, so you're sensitive to one part of a squat, so maybe we need to vary – how your feet are positioned or your depth or something like that for a a little while. And I think the question often comes down to, and we spent the first part of this podcast more discussing the diagnostic side of it, but it comes down to like, what do we do about it? And essentially like if you're sensitive to one position, then we may need to try some different positions. And you know, there are camps that say there is one way to squat and it turns out there are multiple ways to squat. Like, your feet don't have to be positioned at a perfect 30 degree angle and, you know, two centimeters below the C seven process on your spine. No, there there's going to be like big variation in the way people accomplish this task. And even if you've had some type of issue, like we may need to add some variation into that. You, You can almost think about it. Like if you're walking across like a nicely cut lawn, and you see a path most people are going to walk across that path just because it's the easiest like it doesn't have anything to do with their actual destination you're just like people have walked on this and you know worn it down a little bit and that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't walk on the grass it's just the fact that most people are going to follow the path and sometimes when we need to go through the rehab side like we need to get out of that pattern that's kind of worn down from multiple use and worn down in this instance isn't a negative thing it's just the adaptation that's occurred
0: yeah i think that's a great lead-in um to to the next discussion point which is they were trying to answer how should we treat fai syndrome um and just personally i think their recommendations are shit uh just in my opinion just to put that out there but they're basically like this is a syndrome, which means it's it's a triad of presentations of symptoms. Imaging doesn't correlate well. We have this uber-sensitive test that may or may not be related to it. Um, it's usually associated with activity-related symptoms. Like it's this, this um, maraud of things that are being put together to describe a human experiencing pain at the hip region, typically on the anterior side. And so in essence, they're like, well, because this is so difficult to really tease out what's going on. We're just going to do everything. Like that's all. All of our options are conservative management, injection, surgical intervention. We'll just try it all, and whatever works for that particular patient, that's what we're going to go with. And I don't think it's until recently, to to a point you made earlier, Derek, we really try to t- start, try to start figuring out what should we be doing with these patients. And luckily, it seems as though we're strongly leaning towards conservative management. And I think we probably should spend a little bit of time talking about what exactly that means, because I think some people here conservative management, they think, well, I need to, you know, Kelly at this and put a bandit band around my hip and distract it and then put a kettlebell on my psoas to release it so I can get out of this anterior hip pain.
1: Uh, I think all parties here would concede that's not the best way of going about it. But I, I think the consensus statement actually has something that's worth discussing, The sentence is There is currently no high level evidence to support the choice of a definitive treatment for FAI syndrome. And here's what I would say to the listeners in regards to this if someone comes at you and says they have the ultimate fix or the ultimate treatment or they're going to bulletproof your hip, they're lying. (laughs) Like, they, they cannot support that statement. Like, even us, as we're trying to figure this out, like, we're going with what we have. And what we have right now isn't a lot, but we're going to follow the normal heuristics of training and and trying to grade it exposed to some areas you haven't been in. There isn't a quick fix to this. No amount of voodoo or crazy trademark tape or whatever is going to address this issue. It may make you look like a Halloween mummy, but that's about it.
0: I like looking like a Halloween mummy. I think that's a fun Saturday night. Uh, a Am- motto, what do you think?
2: I mean, Halloween, Halloween is approaching. People have to start Editing. thinking about their costumes. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> I mean, this kind of, I mean, it's hard to be super specific, but, uh, you know, it kind of alludes to the low back pain talk we had, where, or, I mean, you can have this talk in the shoulder. Whereas, like, if you're predicating a lot of this on pure structure, it's not going to take you very far. And, the pragmatic point I try to make with patients is um, like just going through their symptom history. And like if everything was predicated on the structural change, hence the surgical intervention would try to change that structural change, then you would have like evidence of almost constant symptoms. I would say like, that would be like the, the thought experiment that if the structural change was the like primary factor in all of this, then you wouldn't see a lot of fluctuation in your like symptom episode history. And most people do have changes in the way they experience symptoms. And it's not just predicated on like avoiding the uh, activity that was provocative. You know if you look at their whole adult life, I'm sure you can find instances where they weren't symptomatic versus when they are symptomatic. So there's obviously like more going on. And I think that's like wor- worth exploring with that individual is like, what are their modifiable factors and kind of achieving what they want to do. And I just, it's hard for me to kind of like plant my flag on because of this morphology we're seeing, then that's going to drive the medical intervention that we want to do.
0: Yeah. I think um, it's, In essence, what we're advocating for is we need to listen to the person and their experience with hip symptoms and then figure out what are they experiencing symptoms with particularly. And we've mentioned the squat uh, for sure. And there could be other activities, but then just figuring out, you know, educating about the complexities of pain, educating about image findings, because odds are for um, many of our listeners, the patient's already gone through that. They've already been through the ringer with uh examination and x-rays and have these findings and now the findings are uh, almost like this bell that can't be unrang and it's like well what do i do with that like what do i do with my cam impingement in my hip and that's why i'm having symptoms which almost gives me nightmares of reading the research on the shoulder again about subacromial decompression shit um, and and low back pain as well and it just seems like it's more of the same with that stuff so we should be listening to the patient, figuring out their experience, and then figuring out what activities, postures, and positions, and movements they're struggling with symptoms, and then slowly over time, reintroducing that stuff, getting them to do it again in a tolerable way. So if someone presented, because I think it would be good to go through this, let's say we have like an a 18-year-old male athlete presenting with anterior hip symptoms, most especially with squatting. Let's say they're a, a power lifter and they have a competition on the horizon. What what would you do with that case if they've already had the diagnosis given of femoral acetabular syndrome, they have the image findings, what would it look like to get them from where they're at to where they want to be?
1: Well, I think it's obviously contingent upon the unique individual, but with the competition on the horizon, that's certainly a different confounding factor because that's going to change kind of our slope of where we're going to aim. Um, but you look at it and we may need to take a little bit of a break from competition squatting and we can work on some things and try out like a split squat or a rear foot elevated split squat or a leg press, or, you know, some, even if we wanted to go like isolated hip work out of it. But the problem is like if you did conservative care as a Halloween costume, like you, you would, you'd have a needle in you, tape and uh, some electric prod attached to you and really like it's are you doing the basics and the real basics of all of this comes down to like be patient do the exercises you can tolerate and we have this like association that in order to get better at squatting, we need to squat, which I fully believe according to the principle of specificity, but if we have some symptoms while we're squatting, it is perfectly okay to go work around this using some other means and other exercises along the way.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I, I would agree with that. I'm totally fine with like, not completely shelving something, but like just, you don't have to, you don't have to work through it and like bear and grunt that you can. We can find alternatives. Like I'm dealing with it right now. I, I don't have radiographic evidence to say I have morphology, but I have the other criteria to fill the symptom buckets that they're explaining. And then I'm working with my coach right now, just trying to find how do I keep training and you know without you know waking up in the middle of the night with pain. So. You know, it's different. It's going to be different for everyone. But right now, like high box squats and, you know, some tempo work seems to be agreeing with me. And I would take that same approach with anyone else and try to figure out like where they're coming from. And can we change range of motion? Can we rate? Can we change tempo? Can we change depth? Can we change foot position? Can we do single leg work? Like, there are a lot of options, but I think that's where like working with somebody individually is like the key.
0: Yeah, I think both of those are good points. Like in essence, we are advocating for there are options. There are options to keep you active. There are options to get you towards your goals. But just realizing there's going to be steps along the way that we need to take to help you know help with symptom regression, load you tolerably, and then move you closer towards your goals. Um, and somehow, especially if they've got those radiological images, we spend a good good bit of time educating about that, discussing kind of their their worries or concerns with it. And then trying to move them away from that over time. Um, but I think both of those answers are exactly what we should be doing for conservative care from education standpoint to exercise interventions, um, altering range of motion, altering loading, changing exercise selection if need be. All that stuff I think are really, really solid points. And then building people back over up over time, getting them to realize that they're resilient So I know a a bunch of questions that we got um, for the Q&A, we're not going to get to this just yet, but one of them that always stood out was um, when should a case be considered? Like, let's say, and and this is the difficult part of this, is usually my understanding is when we lead to surgery, it's this line of failed conservative management. But to Derek's point, failed conservative management could mean you're walking around like a Halloween costume with K-tape on you, and someone's cupping you and sticking a needle in you and trying to mobilize your hip for you and all of these other things, and then that leads to surgery. Is there, to you guys' knowledge, a time and a place when we should be pushing the person towards an orthopedic consult for this and surgical intervention?
1: I certainly think there is, and I, but this gets into kind of that conversation of what is conservative care. I, I have definitely had individuals who we have went through 12 weeks of therapy. There's no real resolution of symptoms and they've went in and had arthroscopy and done spectacular in the outcome out of it. But, you know, I've also had to go the other way, but it really gets into how long are we willing to exhaust what we would call conservative care? And it's ultimately up to the patient on how long they want to go down that. Route. like I it's I can try and advise that something isn't the best idea according to the research but if it's something they want then I'm going to support them in that decision and we're going to figure out what our post-operative plan is
2: mm-hmm. yeah it has to ha- it has to come down to the conversation right What what are they willing to do because I can I can think of a case I had last year where similar where you know 12 12 weeks of therapy no real change yet and then has the orthopedic consult, and then we have the conversation, like, is this something you want to go through with right now? And in that case, she didn't want to. She was like, I'd rather keep keep trying this and keep modifying activity because right now I just can't do surgery. But for someone else, that might be, it might work well with their life at that point, and they might be willing to give it a shot.
0: Yeah, I definitely struggle with this um, because some cases I'm primary consult on And I deal with anterior hip pain. And I was looking this up yesterday because I was curious. Uh, It's really hard to find uh, hip x-ray or hip imaging guidelines like we have for Ottawa ankle, cervical spine, and for knee. And it just turns out that someone presents with anterior hip pain, they do FIDIRs, have reduced range of motion, have activity-related symptoms, let's order x-ray we're already hinging ourselves to this biomedical approach. And so I think once that bill is rang, it, it is extremely difficult to unring it. And I, I'm curious and I often wonder that those cases that we consider, like Derek's discussing, felt conservative management, even if it's what we deem appropriate conservative management, is sometimes knowing may not be the best approach. And once you have that knowledge and you've assigned that the only way this case is going to improve is by us correcting that, very, very similar to subacromial impingement syndrome. And that's what we have to do. And we have the evidence of that for subacromial issues. We've looked at qualitative data. I'm not aware of any qualitative studies on this yet, but I think that would be a really, really good study to conduct is the negative outcomes of physiotherapy interventions based off of being supplied that narrative. What do you guys think?
1: Well, if you look at like back in the early 2000s, a lot of this literature was first coming out. The time to diagnosis, I, I wanna say was somewhere between like three months and two years for a lot of these individuals. So they were having anterior hip pain and, and going from like clinician to clinician to clinician and not really getting an answer. And then finally they got to a hip specialist who diagnosis diagnosed it as FAI. So by then like you failed conservative care almost just because you had the Russian doll game of conservative care. Like nothing actually got done. It was just like opinion stacked on opinion. So I I do agree that, you know, finding or having these findings out there can be disadvantageous, but I also think like, sometimes we get a little bit out in the ether when it comes to like, a lot of patients actually want a diagnosis. And it's up to us to educate them on how much that diagnosis is going to influence the prognosis out of it. So, you know, if someone really wants imaging, then it's my job to try and inform them of what the outcomes of that is and what the base rate of whatever we're looking at is. So, like, once again, it's ultimately, it's up to us, but, like, we need to account for the fact that a lot of people do want to know what is wrong and we can't be dismissive of that fact just because we know in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter that much.
2: Yeah. And we can frame it for them probably better, hopefully than if it was just like raw information, you know, if they just got like a printout and it was like, here you go, go deal with this. You know, we can, we can frame it for them in a way that
1: this is your anatomical
2: diagnosis, but you know, maybe there's other other diagnoses we can make.
0: Since we don't have guidelines on this that I'm aware of, um, I think how I would approach this with ordering imaging for these cases and how I have would be an initial bout of conservative management, very similar to what we see advocated for, for acute onset low back pain, with only a handful of percentage of cases actually warranting immediate imaging done. I think that's how I would approach this. I don't think I would order imaging, and, and I haven't on the initial consultation for uh, the diagnostic criteria for FAI syndrome, Um, and you can inform them that this is potential, maybe this is what's going on, and we could certainly have that discussion, intervene conservatively, and then if things didn't improve over time, I think that could be an advocacy for ordering imaging and then having alternative care plans selected. But I just don't know that I can get on board with out-of-the-gate consultation advocacy for imaging, given everything we know about this topic
1: yeah I mean, I'm not saying it needs to be out of the gate, but uh, I do think we can't be strictly dismissive of a patient's desire to look for a diagnosis, but that's on us to have the conversation on why or why not we do think it's warranted
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and i I know this hasn't been answered in like a research way, yet, but you know, with some of the research saying like patients are looking for a diagnosis like it's in in those qualitative studies. I wonder how much of that is also tied to, like, them wanting certainty, and then certainty comes out in, term, in, in the form of a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, like, we, we can supply diagnosis, but then, you know, maybe how can we supply some certainty in the situation as well that's not doom and gloom? I'm not sure if that's making sense.
1: No, it, it makes sense. Uh, I think we forget that a lot of the things that we say, and it, it almost goes back to the conversation on like reading something and not knowing how to pronounce it. And it, it's, it's funny because Mike keeps calling it for and I call it fader. And it, yeah, I've never pronounced that way in my life. Um, so the Cairo. yeah, it, well, it's, it really like, even that's an interesting case because without the context, if he just said that to me in passing it'd be like, what the hell is he talking about right now? And we forget that a lot of times when we start talking with our patients, we have this propensity to like go into the technical speak. And it just sounds like a lot of really big words. You know, I've joked for a little while. I don't think I've learned much in the past five years, except for a lot more acronyms for things. And it's like, how many different ways can I say the same thing and how complex or how, simple do I need to make it? And that's a lot of the crux of the explanation is, you know, we can talk about like anterior compressive forces with a straight leg raise status post hip arthroscopy, and you're putting pressure right over where the anchors were laid. So do we need to do that exercise? But like, is that really a conversation I need to have with a patient? (laughs) Like, it's cool. I'm glad I know that, but like, it doesn't afford me anything besides like reinforcing something that i read in a paper from a hip trauma paper in 2008 so yeah. you know, it doesn't add to the conversation sounds cool though
2: yeah which is similar to like a lot of the tendinopathy uh talk right like we know a lot about the tendinopathy physiology but then how much yeah. does that come across in like patient interaction
1: well it's that whole you know you have to know a lot in order to say a little yeah
2: like the iceberg kind of analogy
1: yeah and i think knowing or, or being able to just do it in a simple way there, there's a certain elegance to that versus giving a full-on dissertation on the minutiae of something
2: mm-hmm.
0: So do you guys think, because um, I have an agreement that oftentimes diagnosis, giving a label is important to people, um, even though we try to frame it from a prognostic standpoint, do you think, because we see this with the rotator cuff, and I know I keep going back to this, but it's probably the best example we have thus far in the literature because the hip just hasn't caught up yet with the shoulder stuff. Hopefully it will, and it looks like it will in the future. But what we've really transitioned to with the shoulder is just away from subacromial impingement altogether. And we advocate now for rotator cuff related pain syndrome. Do you think that would be something that would be a satisfying diagnost- diagnostic label for patients so we're not further hinging ourselves to morphological alterations that very well may be, especially for athletes, sport specific adaptations?
1: I mean, I'm fine with hip pain as a diagnosis, (laughs) so I don't think (laughs) we we need to go much beyond that in many instances, especially, like, in the athletic population. Um, You know, there is a paper on diagnosing anterior hip pain, or the Doha consensus statement on groin pain is one of my favorites because they give clinicians a case study, and I think there were 13 clinicians, and they got 11 different diagnoses for the same case. And it was, like, super obscure, like, hockey hip, Gilmore's groin. And, like, if you look at all of these diagnoses, it's hilarious because it really, like, they're all the same thing, just said a different way. And it depends on, like, which camp taught you what to say. And, you know, it doesn't add anything. And God forbid, like, we start talking about sports hernia, and the idiocy of that diagnosis. But, like, it we have these statements out to say, like, don't say this stuff. And then it it seems like it just gets like disregarded in favor of like the next complex thing. And, you know, we're seeing these videos come out now because some idiots got an ultrasound machine and start sticking cups on themselves and they can see things move underneath and like, just because you see something move or something hurts when you poke on it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the cause or contributes to what's going on. It just means that something's changing while you're doing something. And like, you know, I squatted yesterday and I'd be willing to bet if either of you palpated my peasant anserine today, I'm not going to be very happy and it has nothing to do with any injury. It's The fact that I squatted yesterday.
2: Yeah. And you're, <laughs> I, I don't want to palpate your peasant anserine, but, um, we're limited by our lens right like even even though ultrasound imaging is an advancement beyond what we had 50 years ago like in another 50 years i'm sure we'll look back on that and be it'll look like the stone age so we can only see so much based on our technology so you know it's not like we can make definitive claims on on that alone
0: We're seeing that with uh, low back currently, right? Um, I think all of us saw that article on advancement of MRI and hoping to just be able to peer deeper and deeper and have more sensitivity with that, and suddenly that's going to unlock the supposed problems with low back pain. The Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Seminars are officially launching with myself, Dr. Michael Ray, and Dr. Derek Miles. This fall in Boston, Massachusetts, we will be there on November the 1st and the 2nd for a two-day seminar. This seminar is dedicated to helping attendees understand and implement scientific principles into clinical practice in order to provide evidence-based care to their patients dealing with pain and the rehabilitative process. This seminar is appropriate for clinicians, coaches, and trainers who wish to increase their knowledge base about pain, rehab, and case-specific exercise prescriptions. Topics will include evidence-based practice, pain education, hip pain, shoulder pain, low back pain, youth resistance training, and ACL rehab. Each body region-specific lecture will be followed by a breakout session in which attendees will learn to practically apply the principles that they are learning for specifically exercise prescription. These breakout sessions will include learning how to perform particular exercises such as the squat the deadlift, the bench press, the overhead press, and other case-specific exercises that are relevant. After completion of this two-day seminar, attendees will have a broad understanding of the current best scientific evidence regarding the topics and how to apply such knowledge to clinical practice. Finally, every seminar will include a question and answer session where myself and Dr. Derek Miles will spend time answering all of your questions. Check out for more information on our website at barbellmedicine.com. Um, so moving along with this consensus statement, they said, how should someone with an asymptomatic hip with CAM or pincer morphology be managed? And they say it is not known which individuals with CAM or pincer morphologies will develop symptoms and therefore FAI syndrome. Preventative measures may have a role in higher risk populations, but it's rarely indicated to offer surgery or these individual, to these individuals. Do we know risk factors at all for the development of anterior hip pain as it relates to this?
1: I mean, for the development of pain, not that I'm aware of beyond the normal ones that we know about, like spikes in load, sleep deprivation, and outside stress. But, you know, if, if you look at cam and pincer, uh, I'm pretty sure if we get in the literature, like you see a lot of it is very sport specific. Like hockey players tend to have more cam type morphology, um, dancers tend to have more pincer type m- morphology so it's not necessarily like anything that you're doing wrong it's just what you're doing and it's not inherently bad it just is
0: Amato, yeah. what do you think
2: no yeah i would i would agree with that i don't i don't know of anything to say that's predictive of uh onset beyond like what we know generally where it's like prior history of symptoms is predictive of you know the re reoccurrence. Yeah, but that's
1: pretty much it.
0: Yeah, and I think those would be things that we center our education around. Is especially load management, stress management. Uh, we talked a lot about athletes. Are they in final exam week dealing with this? Was this preseason, and they had a um, not great training in the off season, and then ramped up preseason very quickly, and we have symptoms now. All of these things would be important discussion points um, that we could have with education. It, the, the big thing that I think we haven't really talked about that I'm going to try to talk about and not lose my temper with is it would seem as though there is a subset of people, um, who want to advocate for surgical intervention for correcting this morphological alteration with cam or or mixed. And we had the fashion trial come out, um, in the UK this, this, I think that was this year. And we have several other trials that are getting teed up or ongoing, that hopefully is going to elucidate this a little bit more, but we don't have data on natural history of FAI findings with someone being symptomatic. We don't have, outside of what we've already talked about, broadly speaking, a lot of risk factors for symptoms related to the development of FAI syndrome. And we really don't have a lot of efficacy trials at well-conducted randomized control trials on what we should be doing, whether it's a watch and wait approach a uh, educational approach, a goal-directed activity approach, uh, medication management or surgical interventions. and the fashion trial was kind of like the first step towards us trying to assess these things. Um, but what did you guys think about the fashion trial?
1: Well I mean and I'm sure, Surgeons do the same thing because I, I know I would if I were a surgeon. Anytime I see like arthroscopic surgery versus physiotherapy, my first thought initially is, okay, what's physiotherapy? And then you start looking and like your eyes roll back into your head. And it's just, you know, sitting on a ball, marching in place and things like that. But in the same regard, like uh, I'll defend the orthopedic surgeons for a moment. Like there's a lot of, there's a couple different techniques that you can use for hip scopes. So I could easily see if I were trained in or trained under the more like Philippon approach versus the bird approach and this paper, used the bird approach. I'd be like, well, guess what? These guys, obviously it's their surgical technique. It's not anything I was doing. So I, I think, you know, there's always layers to all of this, but if you're comparing conservative care at a dose that would be Homeopathic at best. Like mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't be overly surprised that you're not getting big results out of it.
2: It's also promising in a way that if you know if we look at that, if you look at the PT intervention and we think it's subpar, then you know, imagine if we elevated it and then you know, not that we, not that we can extrapolate the paper's findings that far, but that it holds well for us that just moving that's essentially what they did it was like they were just these patients were moving and didn't have surgical intervention they still saw improvement just just not as much improvement compared to the surgical intervention group but uh, i'm sure mike can kind of go on a tirade about the confidence intervals and mcids but you know, huh, yeah. that wasn't that wasn't that impressive um beyond the p value yeah. So,
0: I mean, to Derek's point, uh, I agree that it does come down to kind of the fidelity of the intervention. And to the paper's credit and author's credit, they tried to assess that. They had a panel of people who reviewed both the physical th- uh, physiotherapy protocols and the surgical procedures and rated the fidelity level of them. And uh, over three-fourths on both sides said that they were high fidelity, um, and which was interesting because then I was like, well, also, to Derek's point, we I went and pulled the PDF on what did physiotherapy consist of, and I think all of us would agree that it was basically a homeopathic dose of physiotherapy. Um, and it it's interesting that, that was the majority of those cases were labeled as high-fidelity, meeting the standard of what people expect from physiotherapy. And looking at the outcomes, it really wasn't that different between surgical outcomes versus... Um, Uh, what they called personalized hip therapy. At six-month mark, it was exactly the same. At the 12-month mark, uh, the adjusted rate was just barely over MCID level, which was the MCID was 6.1. The surgical group had a 6.8 difference over the physiotherapy group. So we're talking like minuscule differences. And that was only for the primary outcome. All other secondary outcomes were not statistically significant at all. Um, now they're planning on following these people up. I think they're doing a three-year, a five-year, and a ten-year follow-up. So I'm very interested to see. I my I imagine what's going to happen is is completely equal. But the really shitty part of this, I think, was neither really demonstrated a lot of benefit. It wasn't. There's one graph in particular in that study that plots out both of those interventions comparatively over time. And a year out, I look at that and I'm like, you, there's really not a whole lot of difference from baseline to where they're currently at now. What did you guys think about that?
1: Well, I want to go back to something you just said about the fidelity, because if you think about it, if any of us were to design a study like this and we said, okay, we want to check the fidelity of this, we're, when we're designing it, we're not going to contact random people we've never met before and ask, Right. So yeah. chances are you're going to get peers that kind of have the same mentality as you. Cause I mean, how often do we text each other and we're like, Hey, does this sound like a good idea or, you know, should I titrate this up or down? And, you know, you're going to ask your peers to check your fidelity. So if you yeah. take a group of individuals who are already on the conservative, on the conservative side of conservatives care, then you're probably going to get that rate as a high fidelity.
0: I think that's a, a really good point, and I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. It, it, I don't know that we have public knowledge of who was on that consensus panel for fidelity rating, but that would make sense that you're going to reach out to your peers who have like-minded thinking towards this, and yeah, I agree with that completely. So I think some downside to this, they didn't do um, a true control arm. They didn't do a watch and wait. That would help see like natural history of things. Um, it, it wasn't a blinded study from the sense of the participants didn't know. They obvi- the participants did know, obviously, whether they were going for surgery or physiotherapy. The surgical group also received rehabilitation post-surgery. There's a lot of, a lot of problems with this fashion trial. And personally, I would just toss it in the trash and not even utilize it as something to build upon our current knowledge. I kind of feel like we're still back on the 2014 Cochrane review that looked at the interventions for FAI and they said that there is no high quality evidence examining the effectiveness of surgery for FAI impingement.
1: So I definitely want to like positive spin this for a minute because I, I understand how like it's easy to crap on this stuff. But like, where maybe I think Gans did the first one in like 2002. So we're 2001, 17, yeah, yeah, 17 years into this, 18 years into this, and we're already getting randomized controlled trials out of it. Like, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, I don't think this has a lot of efficacy. But like, way to go, guys! Like, you're actually like doing the Try. work you need to do to justify yeah. this. Like, to me, every time I see this, I'm like, this is spectacular. Like I, I think bird and philipon tracking their outcomes out of the gate was great. Like we're getting this stuff. I mean, it looks like there's a lot of registered trials coming out in the next few years. Like I, I can't wait to see what it all says. And so like, as much as I'm sure at this point in the podcast, our bias is that there's not a lot of efficacy for the surgery. Like kudos to the individuals who are doing the leg work to go ahead and check it out this fast. Cause I mean, I would hate to know when the first meniscectomy was performed and like, what, yeah. was about getting the stuff out yeah. of that, like 60 years later, probably.
0: Yeah. I think most of my just anger at the way the study was conducted probably comes off as a, a negative bias towards it uh, for sure. But I do agree that, it's good we're conducting this research and trying to get some answers on this stuff. Uh, So let's kind of move towards the last part of this podcast, which is going to be the question and answers. And so just want to try to go through a couple of them. And I think we've answered a ton of them already related to diagnosis and treatment, intervention, and and efficacy. Um, Let me take a look. So one person asked, if I keep hurting my hips, will I need hip replacement surgery? Um, I heard this recently, something along the lines of that. Sometimes these questions are difficult to understand what they're saying, but this is from because of the implication, if I keep hurting my hips, quote unquote, well, I need hip replacement surgery.
1: I mean, we can't really say that. I'm sure you can find a lot of people who have a pretty extensive history of injuries that, uh, never got a total hip But you know, I think, without knowing more about this question, it's hard to really say, because I would say if you keep giving yourself some type of like hardcore repetitive trauma or like even higher magnitude trauma, like, yeah, you're going to be at an increased likelihood of having a total hip down the road. Like I'm, I'm comfortable saying that, like, but if you keep hurting your hips, I would say you probably need to change some behavior to where that's not occurring quite as much.
2: Yeah, and this kind of gets into, like, not that I binarily um, label people like this, but, like, are you, like, a persister or are you, like, an avoider? And Mm -hmm. so, like, I wouldn't want someone to avoid activity because they think they're going down the path of hip replacement surgery. But I also wouldn't want someone to, like, blindly persist and kind of take a nihilistic view of, like, well, it doesn't matter what I do. If I just stay active, I won't need replacement because that's a different extreme, like kind of what uh, Derek was alluding to just now.
0: Yeah, I think it's finding balance for sure and trying to assess what they mean by hurt and whether they think that means harm. But I think if you're symptomatically pushing yourself past what you're capable of tolerating, probably not going to end well, and we need to find some balance there. Um, hopefully that helps out. Do you suggest specific strengthening and mobility exercises, routines for FAI? This is from... Frederick olds. Olds?
1: No. I I think it's all contingent upon the individual, and it's part of the reason why we can't write a blog of, like, do these eight things, because probably the three things are different for each individual and how they're going to be dosed in. And I, I think trying to get it down to everyone should do the same is to pun a hip thing, putting a square peg in a round hole. So we're like... (laughs) <laughs> we're cam impinging our strengthening dosage. Um, but it really, every individual is going to respond a little bit differently. And there isn't a one size fits all. Like the heuristic is the same and what we need to do about it is the same, but it's going to scale to the individual and what their goals are, where they're at. Um, you know, There's a lot of factors that go into it. And sometimes it really is like, go get good at this one thing and then come back and we'll change it to the next level.
2: Yeah, I I think, like, in this case, like, this diagnosis just tells us where to start looking, but it doesn't tell us, like, what to do. And we have to, like, make, like, I always tell my patients, like, I'm trying to find out today what makes you you. Like, where do we need to start to kind of get this, like, ball rolling? Um, I don't have the answers off the bat.
0: I like that, what makes you you. In essence, what are the things that they want to be able to do that they feel like they're struggling with, which would, all of us are advocating for individualized uh, you know, if you want to call exercise prescription for people, in essence, you cannot bulletproof your hips. There aren't three weird trick exercises <laughs> you can do to fix FAI, fix your situation and never have to deal with it again. So if that is what people are telling you, I would run in the opposite direction, click on follow block, all of those
2: things. I did see, I did see a funny meme where it was like the only way to bulletproof yourself, yourself and someone posted like a bulletproof vest.
0: Uh, they don't even. They don't even. Only because I've actually warned them. Uh, is why <laughs> they, just, <laughs> they don't talk about it from preventing bullets from penetrating. It's more of a risk reduction discussion. Even with that, so it's not like I have this vest on; the bullet will never penetrate because it even gets at the type of bullet trying to pierce. But yeah, it's so not,
1: not even. He's <laughs> laughing. Yeah, that? <laughs> what was that? So it says the guy with the 50 cal is laughing at you downrange. Right, right. And that's probably going to a
0: spose vest. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to test that out at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. defer
0: to you on
2: that. <laughs> but,
0: so you're not but even yeah. bulletproof with a vest. You are possibly bullet resistant depending on the caliber that you're being hit with.
1: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you should open up your own bullet resistant therapy course now.
0: Yes, I, I am officially an expert at this.
2: <laughs>
0: um, um, let's take one more question because I know we gotta gotta wrap things up. And this one I think is probably very important to this discussion. What causes hip flexibility issues? Is it solely genetics? And this is from B. doen
1: ninety
2: eight. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's not even a yes or no question. <laughs>
1: But it's solely genetics. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, No, there are way too many factors going into this to nail it down to just genetics. I, I think you likely have some genetic predisposition, and it may even be like this gets into the does the athlete pick the sport or does the sport pick the athlete. But, like, as far as causing flexibility issues, it's a combination of a ton of stuff. Likely a lot of it has to do with like how you're training, what you're doing, you know, and then some genetics sprinkled in there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think we can't negate what we've been talking about this whole time is the adaptation as it relates to this discussion to sports specificity. And then flexibility is such a difficult conversation because it's probably dependent on what you're trying to do comparatively to what you've previously done. And have you put in the time to try to improve your range of motion at that task that you're attempting to improve at Uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't link it to one one weird trick you need to do to improve your hip flexibility but I would try to figure out what the task is you wanted to improve at and then slowly work on regressions and progressions of that what do you Mm -hmm. think Amato?
2: Yeah it's kind of the same thing that we talked about in the past like it's not that are you strong or are you weak it's like are you strong enough for what you want to do and it's like are you flexible enough for what you want to do and flexible is a Loaded term, but the demands of somebody else who wants to do a split is going to be different than the demands of hitting, like, a parallel squat. Yeah, And uh, in, in, like, FAI cases, I, I don't think flexibility probably holds a lot of water.
0: Yeah. And I think, like, um, I don't know if we've come out and said this, but you you can squat if you want to squat, even with this diagnosis. Like, the the you are mm-hmm. not forever screwed because someone has given you this label. And I think that's important to state.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would go on the other end of that spectrum and say that just because you have this diagnosis and you know, you can squat does not necessarily mean that you should just go ham and keep squatting while you're having.
0: It is. There is some nuance to appropriate loading. I think on that note, uh, uh, Mike, did you have something else to add?
2: No, I was disagreeing. Just agreeing. Oh.
1: Yeah.
0: Um I think on that note, that's probably a good stopping point. Hopefully this has been somewhat elucidating and I've tried to maintain control over my temper and not break stuff um during during this discussion. So
2: you did a very good job, Michael.
0: Sweet. And then apparently <laughs> I need to learn how to pronounce I'm gonna keep calling it fadirs because screw you guys. Uh, that's what I'm going with.
1: Listen, if we're gonna use me as any litmus on how to say things right, I think we're screwed out the gate anyway. I'm just saying I've never heard it pronounced that way. I don't know. I don't even know if I was taught that way.
0: There's a high probability that I just started saying it that way and that became my normal and I wasn't even taught that way.
2: That's okay. I can I'm pretty sure I practiced saying phenomenology for like three weeks straight. Nope.
0: I probably would still screw that up. So yeah. I'm not gonna try. Well, hopefully this has been helpful to you guys. Um, if you have any questions about this or you want further interaction, be sure to check out our Pain and Rehab uh, completely free subforum online at barbellmedicine.com. All three of us try to engage on that. Um, if you have any future topics you want us to talk about, feel free to message the, those to us, and we'll try to get them on the list. Until next time, keep training.